Hey, welcome to Unorthodox. It's the weekly podcast from Tablet Magazine. I'm your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by Deputy Editor Stephanie Butnick. Hi. Hi, Stephanie. And Senior Writer Liel Leibovitz. Volker Tovenerts. Later in the show, we'll be talking with author and Jewishly named woman Alyssa Katz. And the non-Jewishly named Gentile of the Week is Emily Moore. Just can you just drink in the non-Judaism of that name? The tranquility, the, tranquility. the goyish tranquility of Emily Moore. It's like a sip of a of a Tom Collins. Not, at the a, club. not a drop of shtetl anywhere. In that Nowhere scene. in it. She sings in the camp country trio Menage a Twang and also writes poetry. But first, a little news of the Jews. Last week we mentioned that Harry Potter himself, Daniel Radcliffe, is of the Jewish persuasion, and we got some really nice tweets saying things like, "Holy cow, I never knew that. Thanks, unorthodox." Well, it's true. And this week we learned that Daniel Radcliffe is getting his own star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, to which we can only say Mazel Tov. In other news of the Hollywood Jews, former NWA manager Jerry Heller, portrayed so brilliantly by Paul Giamatti in the movie Straight Outta Compton, has sued well, pretty much everyone. He sued Ice Cube, NBC Universal, Dr. Dre, and Easy es widow for defamation because he didn't like how he was portrayed in the film. Uh, Liel, is he going to win his suit? I, I don't know. I mean, the portrayal was actually, I thought, so fair and nuanced. And I thought it made good. him seem kind of great. Kind of did. Yeah. Kind of complicated yeah. and interesting. And and Holocaust denier and legendary anti-Semite Willis Cardo died last week at his home in Virginia. With his death, the role of America's leading Holocaust denier is now vacant. <laughs> so we will be taking applications here. I think we actually should have, like, <laughs> America's next top Holocaust denier. <laughs> That's our game show. If you believe the Holocaust is a myth, write to us at unorthodox at tablinmag.com, and we will have you on the air. Yeah. yeah. Send us the most anti-Semitic thing you can, the, the most ahistorical and anti-Semitic thing you can, and... Uh, you know, you might make it onto unorthodox. But let's talk about orthodox women rabbis. The past few years, a number of orthodox women have gotten advanced degrees that have brought with them titles like rabbah or maharat, which are words they're using instead of rabbi to indicate that they are spiritual leaders. This development of women pseudo-rabbis is welcomed and I don't, I don't say that judgmentally. I just mean they're not using the term rabbi. Pseudo-rabbis is the greatest name for a band ever. <laughs> the pseudo-rabbis. Mark Oppenheimer and the pseudo-rabbis. <laughs> uh, this development is welcomed by some of the more liberal orthodox or those who are calling themselves open orthodox. But this week, the Rabbinical Council of America, an umbrella group of orthodox rabbis, passed a resolution saying that their members may not ordain women into the Orthodox rabbinate regardless of the title used. In other words, don't try to pretend like you're not claiming rabbi by calling yourself rabbah. You're trying to be a rabbi and only men get to be rabbis. And that got the Orthodox feminist pissed off and like Facebook is just melting down with the vitriol over whether these couple dozen women can call themselves rabbis and whether they can be welcomed as spiritual leaders. I have to say, in all seriousness, if you tune into this world, which admittedly is a small, 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 small world of people who care, uh, I think a split is coming. I like some, It seems like a little thing. Can these women do rabbinic things and, and be considered clergy? But the hardcore people will never accept it. And for some of the more liberal orthodox, it is, um, it's the way of the future. And it's like it's going to do to orthodoxy what the gay issue is doing to some Protestant groups, the gay marriage issue. I mean, the RCA, they also came out against the gay marriage ruling. So, like, we're sort of on the similar side of all these issues. 
But what I think is these women aren't calling themselves rabbi. They are going so far out of their way to, to do this in a way that seems, I don't, you know, kosher with the, all these restrictions. And then for this group to sort of say, no, 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 it's not enough. You're still, I don't care what you're calling it. You're still trying to do this thing. I don't know. I just feel like, I think it's a knee-jerk reaction. If you say, should women in orthodoxy be able to be rabbis, you'll either get a yes or a no. Like, there's no, like, mm, I'm not really sure. I think you have a stance on it. And I think, you're right, this is a real wedge issue. No, this is a genius, though, you know, the free market, right? You want to call yourself a rabbi, that's fine. Then some rabbinic association says you can't, that's fine, too. You start your own rabbinic association, you get three times the numbers, and that's the end of that. Yeah, and in fact... Jews are lucky because we don't have a pope or uh, like a high a quorum of 12 the way the Mormons do in Utah right. that gets to like stamp things kosher. Not like, you know, you want to set up your own little association of synagogues like gay gazins, like yeah. rock, rock on. You could always be the one that other people will never set foot in. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's the association I don't go to. Yeah. That's right. I'd like us to have an official mahara. Like we need maharat. Could we take? There are like a couple dozen now. Yeah, I we think. can pick. We can how, take our pick. How is a maharat not a female of a maharaja? <laughs> it is you true. It's an amazing word. Yeah. Maharat does sound. It has this kind of South Asian flavor it's to like, it, right? Oh, welcome. I am the maharat. I am the maharat. Uh, okay, so moving on to more hallowed ground, uh, cats, or as they say in Hebrew, cuts. <laughs> as they say in Hebrew, cuts. Cuts. <laughs> Israel's minister of agriculture. Uri Ariel suggested, according to a leaked document that no one is doubting is legit, that one solution to Israel's problem of stray cats is that they all be rounded up and deported to another country. Or if not all the cats, at least all the cats of one sex. I'm going to say sex, not gender, because, of course, you have to deport. It it doesn't matter how they self-identify in the gender continuum. The point is, if you get rid of all the boy cats or all the female cats, stray cats stop reproducing. I have to say something. It is about damn time we started talking about cats on this podcast because I just think that like it's a really underrepresented community that we are not spending enough time discussing. Well, we have a list of cats on today. It's true. We do have a list of cats. <laughs> Liel, as our senior Israel correspondent, well, so Liel, you're the senior Israel correspondent. Stephanie, you're the senior cat correspondent. It's true. I, you know, what they do to Israeli stray cats is is low on my list of concerns. But see, cats are like the national animal of Israel. Like anyone who goes on a birthright program sees them everywhere. Like they they are so inherent to the identity. The fabric and straight, of- there's stray dogs there too. But the cats, there's no, the something. Cats, there's the cats something. are way, they are way everywhere, worse. and they're not uh, scared and, of and, you. And we're we're really looking we're really looking here at the uh, at the beginning of the cat final solution. So I'd like to play some uh, some music that that uh, befits that. If, if this is going to work, that'd be lovely. Um, can you imagine the scene? It's black and white, and all the cats are rounded up on the train on their way to Meowschwitz. Oh, or too to, soon. Or to Pergen Belzen. <laughs> uh, and a, a single dog dressed in red is like, goodbye, cats. Goodbye, cats. No? No one's and feeling the love? Steven Spielberg is directing this? Yeah. <laughs> where's, where's Spielberg? Mitzi's List. Can we do a pun on Shoah right now? Huh? This this is too far for me. This is where I draw the line. Liel, don't you just love the, 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 the creativity of these people? Liel Leibowitz with an iPhone and some Holocaust <laughs> minor key music is a dangerous thing. But like, the unbelievable, by the way. rounding up groups of people, it's like, he couldn't have, he had to have seen that one coming. Like what it sounds it's like. It's like, hello, kitty? No. Auf Wiedersehen, kitty. <laughs> Auf Wiedersehen, kitty. To the train. Schnell. <laughs> schnell, die Katzen. Schnell. <laughs> so amazing. 
<laughs> but I mean, you gotta love Israelis, right? They're just—I mean, this is this is how you build a country. This is how you make the desert bloom. Is you have people so smart and creative you, thinking. You have people like that. And the amazing thing is, the reason for that is he <laughs> believes that spaying and neutering animals is halakhically forbidden. Is that why? That is why. Well, he's unsure about it. <laughs> Wait, he why? That maybe it violates Jewish religious law, and it's like. What? Why would it? Because it's mitzvah purubu. It's it's the uh, you know the the commandment to cats go forth are, and multiply. Cats are living the the and ten the commandments dream. Oh my god! Real they are wait. The true Although Jews. do they truly respect their elders? I mean, <laughs> no. look at your look at your arms all scratched out. Do they truly respect? Yeah, Stephanie's just she's all bloodied by her cat. <laughs> but he loves me. I'm sure of <laughs> if it. If that's how if that's how love is shown in your household. You know there's some golden retriever and some kibbutz somewhere in his love being like, bring it on, baby. <laughs> Well, uh, Israeli cats, um, we have your back here. Be strong. But you know what? With a Republican administration coming in, there aren't going to be a lot of visas for you guys to come here. I think it's the opposite. They're going to build a cat door. Yeah. You think they're going to There's going to be a huge cat door <laughs> between Israel it's and America. It's going to be a door, but you have to climb through <laughs> it. I just don't see Ben... I don't see Marco Rubio, despite the fact that his parents got in, he is not going to let the next generation of cats in. I, I think you're very mistaken, sir. Meow. It's film festival season across the country of the 12 or 15 cities that have Israeli film festivals. And um, the the big one is a, is a documentary about the 20 years since the assassination of Yitzhak Abin, the, uh, the prime minister. Uh, have we seen this documentary? I have. Is it good? It is. Is it? It's very good. It's good because it's, it's entirely in his own words. It's just pieced together from uh, bits of interviews that he uh, gave through the years. And so... It has a strange intimacy to it because you don't hear any other. I mean, you do hear some actors rereading, uh, you know, recreating his letters or rereading his letters. Uh, but most of it is just, you know, the man has been in, in, you know, politics for some decades. So most of it is just his voice. And he was, you know, if you know anything about him, he was this, uh, you know, painfully shy, awkward guy. He was not, you know, uh, a sleek me- media animal like Bibi Netanyahu is. So it's actually quite touching, no matter what you think about of the man and his politics. It's 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 a lovely film. Uh, one of our sister podcasts at Tablet, Israel Story, which is sort of like a This American Life for Israel, uh, but, but awesomer in its own way, and it's in English, has just posted a special episode about Rabin's legacy and the aftermath of his death 20 years later. And you must go check that out. It's called Israel Story, and you can find it at tabletmag.com. I want to say one more thing about film festivals. Uh, there's a movie uh, playing in the film Jewish film festival circuit right now uh, I have not seen this movie. However, I could say with confidence it is the greatest movie ever made. <laughs> it is called Jerusalem with a Z, and it's oh, a zombies. zombie movie that takes place entirely in the old city of Jerusalem. And that's amazing. You should see that movie. Okay, but what about the cats? Are they zombie cats? The cats have <laughs> all that could fled be a really good solution. <laughs> the cats have left. <laughs> Before we go to our guests, uh, a little news about our show. We've been talking for a while about doing a show where we respond to some of the interesting letters that you've been sending us. And we're finally doing it. It will be posted the day before Thanksgiving. So stay tuned. Download it that Wednesday and uh, take it with you for the traffic jam on the turnpike of Thanksgiving. And now, uh, in anticipation of that, a little shout out to some of our letter writers. You have been writing us brilliant, edgy, hilarious letters. Um, I like going through the mail, reading it, uh, getting angry, yelling at it, uh, patting myself on the back for it. Uh, and also looking for who the most Jewishly named letter writers are. We've got mail from Janet Mishner, from Alan Levin, from David Liebschutz, from Phil Kippos, Michael Shepsis, Jacob Velleman, who wrote to tell us after last week's episode that like Wayne Hoffman, he is a Jewish gay bear. 
Ted Kantrowitz, Sharon Litwin, and Tracy Lubin. But winning the award for the most Jewishly named listener is Rachel Leventhal Weiner. So Rachel, oh my God, Rachel, Rachel Leventhal Weiner. It's a double barrel shotgun right there. When, when you decided to hyphenate with your husband, wow, that was. That was for the tribe. This L'Chaim is for you. Uh, On December 15th, we're taking our show on the road to the Jewish Community Center of Washington, D.C. Go to their website for information. That baby is open to the public. Finally, we have a live taping coming up uh, January 25th at the American Hebrew Academy in Greensboro, North Carolina. Because when the Lord above, when Adonai, when Hashem decided that American Jews needed a boarding school, he could think of no better place to put this high school than Greensboro, North Carolina. Well, you have to err in the wilderness for a while before you see the promised land. (laughs) So we will be there January 25th. It's going to be open to the community, uh, and I'm sure it'll be on the American Hebrew Academy's website as well as ours. So let's take the show on the road, boys. Let's take the show on the road. Our Jewish guest today is Alyssa Katz. <laughs> yeah. It's the Cat Show. She's on the editorial board of the New York Daily News, which means that she helps to write those highly influential masthead editorials. And she's the author of The Influence Machine, a new book about the Chamber of Commerce. When's it out? It is out already. It's you can buy it now. In a Barnes & Noble near me? In a Barnes & Noble near you, in Amazon's new brick-and-mortar bookstore. You can buy it anywhere you darn please. All right. So... So you write the unsigned editorials at the Daily News, right? I, along with uh, now four other people, other write people. those. And I will come clean and say, I don't think anyone reads masthead editorials. I don't think they influence anything. And I like, do they matter at all? What's the, And if so, prove it to me. Um, for a handful of people, they matter a whole lot. Today's election day. For voters who read the Daily News, those endorsements matter a whole lot. Um, do, do we know that? So that's the big, that's where the rubber hits the road is the endorsements, right? Do we know that they matter? Um, do we know that they matter? We can infer they matter. I mean, just to take one example, we have a district attorney race in Nassau County, New York, where you have a, a, basically a member of the corrupt uh, Nassau County Republican machine who has no qualifications whatsoever for this office, who was leading in the polls by far against her Democratic uh, rival, who's quite qualified and has been running the office for, for a few years now. Um, and guess what? After we started slamming the unqualified Republican in the editorials, her poll numbers started slipping, and there's a very good chance she'll lose today. So, yeah, we certainly have power. Be honest here. Do you ever abuse that power? Do you ever, like, go <laughs> to have coffee and the service is horrible? Like, and you're like, you know what? I could, I could sort of rain down hell on you in an unsigned <laughs> official manner. Do you ever do that? I have strongly considered it. <laughs> but we keep each other honest, you know? It's, it's, it's a mighty power. That's why there are four. It's like an execution squad in the, in the Red Army. It's nobody like, knows who has the bullet. Nobody knows who has the bullet. <laughs> no, we are resolutely anonymous, right? So we, you know, the temptation is there, but we're, we love keep it. ourselves honest. So why the Chamber of Commerce? Why did they merit a book? Because unbeknownst to the American public, you had a single organization that stealthily moved in to capture much of a political process in Washington. Um, You know, they ended up becoming the biggest lobbyist there. They also ended up becoming the leading force in getting friends of the businesses that were funding the chamber elected so that 
all their lobbyists could go out and meet with members of Congress that they they're the had biggest. So, so hold on. So the default is, the, or, or their fault is, that they're really good at their jobs. Um, the fault is that you end up having massive amounts of political spending to get friendly members of Congress. That's happening completely outside the normal um, regulated process of campaign finance. So, but you, just like every other lobby group in D.C. Well, no, because l- lobbyists can lobby whomever they want, but it's a very different thing when those lobbyists get those individuals elected and do it through backdoors that circumvent the Federal Election Commission. So let me ask you this. I was reading this book, which I found truly fascinating. Um, This is not what I usually get upset about, but I always like finding new things to get upset about. And so I'm reading this book, and here's this this great, you know, nefarious shadow organization, uh, according to the book. And it's really, really, really good at wielding power, except, um, you know... The EPA still strongly regulates uh, a host of things, including carbon dioxide. You know, we still have rules for things like derivative trading. We have Obamacare, which you say is not the, you know, socialist vision it ought to have been, but still, you know, something that's probably a lot of the people associated with Chamber of Commerce would not want. It seems to be a really ineffective lobby. Right. Well, I think the the reason they are currently ineffective, to, and there's, I, I would counter your your view in the EPA. I'll get to that in a second. But it's because President Obama is incredibly smart and strong about how he's using executive power. And what's happening is the chamber is going right back at him and and using every tool it can to block him. So on the EPA, for example. Um, administration is moving to regulate carbon emissions from power plants. The chamber is not only you know suing to block that, but it's rallied all the all the states, governors, and 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 industry leaders to fight that as well. And there's a very good chance that they will prevail in the courts. And if nothing else, they will tie up those regulations for years and years and years. Um, so there's the role of the chamber has in influencing Congress. When that doesn't work, they can fight the battles at the regulatory agencies. And the greenhouse gas fight worked in Congress. I mean, Congress did not pass cap and trade. And again, the chamber was really crucial. So before reading your book, I had a very little sense of what the U.S. Chamber of Commerce does. I can't be alone in that. Is that sort of part of why you wanted to write a book about it? Well, absolutely. I mean, you know, the Chamber of Commerce, I think most Americans think of their local chambers, right? Which, you know, a lot of them, some of them are affiliated with the National Chamber, many are not. And the local chamber's role is pretty straightforward. They want to create strong environments for business. And and often that means real bread and butter stuff like ensuring local schools are strong, making sure the roads are paved. So it's, you know, it's a really geographical, you know, kind of focus. Um, And, um, you know, the connections to Washington tend to be pretty pretty slim. Um, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce for a long time was a lobbyist in Washington and was kind of a super member group for all these local organizations. Um, but it wasn't really, it wasn't involved in partisan politics. It just, it wasn't, it was both against its own internal rules, against its founding mandate, against everything this group stood for. It was all about building consensus in Washington, which meant that it was pretty ineffective for most of its history. Um, and, you know, what what you had ha- had happened in the late 90s is that you had a, a really interesting moment in Washington and the American economy where, you know, this was the Bill Clinton era. This was an era in which you had um, a, a notion that was really winning in the political arena that um, Americans, you know, the Main Street, American households could prosper economically and businesses could grow. I mean, you know, the president was both um, you know, deregulating the financial markets and doing a lot of stuff to help supercharge business, but also doing a whole lot um, to boost how American households were doing. 
And, you know, this in in this kind of win-win was, you know, it was it was great for business in some sense, but you had this opportunity, um, it, you know, where, you know, businesses could have been doing a whole lot better and consumers could have been doing a whole lot worse um, and labor could have been doing a whole lot worse. It wasn't, there were certain players in business who didn't want to share the wealth. And, you know, this was the moment in which the CEO, Tom Donahue, stepped in. He had been at the chamber earlier in his career, came back there um, to run this organization. And he started going around Washington saying, uh, I'm going to turn us into the biggest power in this town. And he would go to companies like the tobacco giants and, you know, like auto companies and say to them, look, we, we, you know, here's the deal. You give us a bunch of money and we will go to bat for you. And if you want us to keep your names out of it, we will. The chamber is going to represent you. So tobacco and guns and stuff can like basically launder their lobbying by giving to the chamber, which will then lobby on their behalf. Right. So tobacco and coal are kind of the biggest culprits. And we don't know everyone who funds the chamber because their identities are secret. Isn't that like a systemic problem, you know, all around? Why not just reform the system? Why go after one specific lobby that's operating under the conditions afforded to lobbies? Because the chamber actually helped create the system that that we have a real problem with right now, right? I mean, the chamber was the pioneer of what we call dark money. Um, They really led the way in... that would have been a great title for the book, by the way. Dark Money. Uh, that would have been a good sister. Um, but they led the way in this and in, in along the way, of, you know, in, in their path of trying to get friendly members of Congress elected, they really pushed the limits of a law, went to court to change the law. Um, and now, of course, we have all these nonprofit groups like spending an enormous amount of money in, in both Congress and presidential elections. So, um, no, they are the system. And that's part of the problem. So the most important question I have to ask you is you once wrote an article for Spin back in the day about the Michigan Women's Music Festival. Uh-huh. And the lesbians got so mad at you, as I recall. What was the what was the politics there that that was were you one of the first people to talk about how male identified how trans men were not being welcome there? That's right. The question Mark's really uh, asking is why do you hate lesbians? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I mean, I think that the the um the I, I was the invader, right? I was um I went to the Michigan Women's Music Festival on assignment for Spin Magazine, which is as male and hormonal, testosterone hormonal, and jockey and, um, you know, anti-women um, power, as you can imagine. And there I was, um, sort of the enemy in the midst, talking to, um, you know, talking to women who wanted to create a safe space for women. And then I turned around and wrote an article about, well, you know, this space isn't really as sacred as um, they're holding it up to be. Um, and yes, I did write. I wasn't the first. Actually, Evelyn McDonald in Ms. Magazine was the first to blow open the scandal of the women-born um, women movement, which is thought to exclude trans women from the, the festival. But now the festival is shut down entirely, right? Because, I mean, it wasn't really sustainable to create a space where you couldn't have trans women, couldn't have trans men, which a lot of the you know folks who were going to the Michigan Women's Music Festival, like, you know, they're... Parts now are trans men, and they wouldn't be able to go either. So it was just a big, big old mess. Is that what and, killed the festival? Was just the the politics of it? Because... I, I wouldn't know, but I, it, it certainly seemed like it was an unsustainable proposition, and I think that was one of the challenges. I can't believe you were trans men, by the way. Can you call yourself a rabbi, or are you a maharat? 
You're a rabah. You're a rabah. You're a rabah. I can't believe you went in to betray all of your sisters. Oh, but like my whole mo as a journalist is sort of seduction God. and betrayal. It's just uh, you know. It's Are you a member thing. of the Chamber of Commerce? And then you they betrayed. They wouldn't talk them? to you. Right? Yeah, then they would not talk to me. They didn't fall for my seductive powers. I don't know if it's you know aging or what it is, but I you know I just can't uh, did, did, didn't have an act this time around. Alyssa, thank you so much. Thank you. Your book is the Influence Machine. You are Jewish. I am Jewish. <laughs> uh, it's been great having you here. Thank you. All right. Awesome. Back in the 90s, I found feminism in Anita Franco and Bikini Kill. Women and music before the backlash. You know, I'm waiting for that revolution girl style still. And use both hands. Now use both And now our world-famous feature, Gentile of the Week, Emily Moore, high school English teacher, poet, member of the all-girl camp country trio, Menage a Twang. Hello. Hello. Welcome. How are you? Great. I'm thrilled to be a guest Gentile. I've dreamed of this moment. (laughs) Um, In your Gentile identity Mm -hmm. kit, (laughs) what comes first? High school teacher? Poet, mother, wife, or... Or non-Jew. Non-Jew, or camp country songstress. Oh, well, Gentile, although fundamental, um, might not be on that immediate list in my bio. Um, I suppose teacher. I think I've been a teacher for the longest. I'm a classroom teacher and have been for 13 years. Um, Yes, teacher, poet, songstress. So after many years of writing poesy, yes, you have a book coming out, right? I do. I do. Amazing. I have a tiny, tiny chapbook. That's what we call an even smaller than usual <laughs> book of poetry coming out from Paper Nautilus Press. It's called Shuffle. It's about my 20s. I'm so excited that it is finally coming out now that I'm approaching 80. Um, yes, it's going to be great. You're a teacher. I am. K- kids, kids are, you know, often horrible. <laughs> How do, you, how do you deal with it? I mean, you teach at a really good school. It's true. Really I teach at a kids. wonderful magnet school where we have very few. We have just fantastic, in, fantastic. No, but, but come a on. nameless There's... magnet school in downtown Manhattan. A nameless magnet in downtown Manhattan, yes. But there has to be one, you know, raging asshole. <laughs> Who's the worst student you've ever had? Someone who scarred you for life. Oh, you know, my students are really wonderful. Why don't I tell you a Come lovely on. recent story? Nobody cares about the loveliness. Give me, give me, you know, oh. give me your cheaters, your... We do. I will say that at a at a fantastic high-achieving magnet school, the crime is white-collar crime. Um, so, they're, right, the, the discipline issues have to do with plagiarism and uh, things of that nature as opposed to... Um, kids acting out in no, some way. As a teacher, do you respect that more or less? Do you wish you just like pull the switchblade? <laughs> right. I honestly respect it less. It's so right. um, it's so duplicitous. There's something very um, there's something sort of wonderfully easy and obvious about a kid who swears in class. Like actually, one of the best freshman classes I ever had. Um, a boy said the word douchebag on the first day in discussion. And I immediately, I usually try to do all my discipline outside of the classroom um, in a way that's not, you know, humiliating or upsetting for the student. But because it was the first day and I felt like it was very obvious that we had to make very clear, sta- I had to make very clear statement about what was and wasn't acceptable. You know, I had a very public 
uh, uh, confrontation of him, and they were angels the rest of the year. They were you an should amazing, do like a amazing plant. class. Douchebag. I know. I should, I should have one kid come in and say douchebag. So yes. where, where do you draw the line? What, what, what is the worst? Yeah, what's word wrong I with douchebag? <laughs> What is the well, worst word I know, could say in class without without you know getting the alarm bells on? Oh, it's probably very similar to TV. Well, it's hard to say. I also teach poetry, and that <laughs> all opens rules are up off. A ra- yeah, a range of uh, verbal Douchebags expression. Welcome. So you came with you have a, a couple questions for us, right? I do, for I you. do. Um, okay, well, I, well, I'll start with the main one. I just went to a Jewish lesbian wedding in Oklahoma. It was amazing. It was so beautiful, and there was a hora. Um, so this has been on my mind, and I realize um, all of the horas that I've ever participated in. We're from um, we're we're at weddings where a disproportionate number of the guests were Gentiles. Is there a kind of horror that I am missing, having never been to the a secret horror fully <laughs> Jewish wedding? Yeah, the one we never a... do for the goyim. Exactly. Do you cut loose in a we way? We wait for that... y'all to leave, and they're like, exactly. Then they really strike up. Well, my favorite thing is like wedding bands in New York. No matter what the makeup of the band is, like they always know the horror. Like there's you, like you're just like. What do you feel like singing this song? It's like they just like go into it and like they do it. And I think in your audition, if, if you're like looking for a wedding band for a Jewish wedding, they're like, okay, here's, the, here's how we do the horror. But I think the difference is not Jewish and non-Jewish, but more religious Jews. I think there's, what is that whole thing where you like, the, you, the bride and groom sit and everyone does like performances for them and it's like a really long horror. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, but that's not a horror. That's, that's like a... This is that's a dance. Here's the thing about the horror. well. The big difference would be at a really religious wedding, the men would be on one side and the women another, and they'd have to do a horror where then they lift them I mean, up like on their the chairs mm-hmm. and they reach over. And so, at modern mm-hmm. Orthodox weddings, the mixed dancing doesn't start till after the rabbi leaves. That's what my mo friends tell mm-hmm. me Nothing is like it's separate gender dancing until the rabbi goes until home dad, at eleven. Dad goes to sleep until and then then everything gets funky. Mm-hmm. Here's the thing about the horror. Uh, when when my wife and I were about to get married, we had a huge fight uh, about this because I, I said with uh, a great degree of historical uh, anthropological accuracy, this is a complete made up thing. Uh, the pioneers who I'm sure your, who were, your wife loved that. Oh that my god. Were, yeah. She was she you know I'm gonna were, marry that guy. Yeah the that guy, guy is lovely. The guy who's like on Google Scholar finding footnotes for the lack no, of but, historical but Mark, if you grow up in veracity Israel, of if you grow the up horror. in Israel here's what you understand about the horror. These uh you understand that you should always put your phone on silent. <laughs> you also understand that that the thing about the horror is that this is a, a Russian folk dance that the first Jewish pioneers who came to Israel brought with them. And they performed it almost kind of like performance art. It's this dance of joy and virility as most of us are dying of malaria and have like a carrot and a beetroot to eat, you know, per week. Um, and and <laughs> once the... Land. Right, right. Once the... Hashtag land of milk and honey. And and once once the country matures, you know, the horror today is still performed widely, but it almost is performed in these like large settings as kind of like nostalgia, you know, tours. And, and I think to take that and adopt that as a sort of the quintessential Jewish-Israeli dance, it, it really is just like, uh, it's almost like the, the Jewish equivalent of like being a drag queen. It's like, I'm going to perform Jewish now. It's like, come on now. You know, if you're religious and you have the traditional dances, it's one thing. But if you're not, can we just do the electric slide? Or no, a little, no electric or... slide. So I'll, so my, my simple answer no. to your question is like, yeah, I think the more Jews there are, the more lively it is and the longer it goes. But my other answer is, and this is off topic, but it just it allows me to scratch a little itch. The people who do nothing else Jewish except they have the chuppah and the hora. Yeah. And it's like they're, they're, they don't care about Judaism at all, but they have the canopy uh-huh. and then they have the and one the dance. people who love it the most are always the goyim. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you oh, guys it's amazing. Lo- I mean, absolutely. You guys love a hora. We do. Yeah. All right. I, I call on banning the hora. 
join wow. me. Email us at unorthodox at tablet.com. So, wait, so did you and Lisa end up having the horror? Yes, we had yeah, a of course stupid they did. Of horror. Course. Um, what's your second question? <laughs> oh, my second question has to do um, with Hebrew names. I teach at a school that has a really high uh, Asian American immigrant population, and um, there's lots of sort of, there are many, many interesting stories that are connected to names and naming and the sort of immigrant diasporic experience of naming. Um, so I've learned a lot about those naming traditions, but I know almost nothing about what a Hebrew name is. Does everybody have one? How do people feel about them? Do you always choose one for your children? Yeah. I have to say that my Hebrew name is Chava Rachel. And it was like always so annoying because in in, 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 only it was only used on my like birth announcement, my bat mitzvah announcement. And then in Hebrew school, and and I'd always have to be like Chava, like I'm Chava. But it's like, I know I'm I'm Chava. But then I went on birthright (laughs) And they were like, she ain't Chava, like, she's my sister. Yeah, they call yeah. you that. And then I did a Yiddish class and they were calling me Kava because in Yiddish it's K-H-A-V-A. And I was like, I was Chava dry because there were three, four Chavas and I was number three. And, it was and like, meanwhile, it just, what means, is this name? it just means Eve, right? <laughs> Rachel, I love Eve, that. Rachel. I'm gonna and does it Eve, have Rachel. any relationship so, to your, no the name that you go no. to Stephanie or no. no? Well, it can't. Like like Rebecca Rose Oppenheimer, whom you, you know, yes. my eldest, is like her Hebrew name is Rivka Shoshana, Rebecca Rose. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, there's nothing halachic. There's nothing legal about it. You don't need to have one. It doesn't gain you any privileges. It's used ceremonially, right? When they call you up to the Torah, they use... Do you have a Hebrew name? Because... Do I have a like, Hebrew aren't name? You, don't you already have a Hebrew name? I have a very Hebrew name. <laughs> what is Liel? Is that biblical? I have a God. No, it's uh, the 70s. It's the se- in the 70s? My, my, na- my, my father wanted to name me Lee after Lee Marvin from the Dirty Dozen. <laughs> and my mother wanted to name me Eliao after this great rabbi ancestor. And so I was Lee El. And which means, means I have a God, have which a God. is a true statement. And I like it. All right. Mm. Yeah. So not everybody has a Hebrew name. Not every right. Jewish American. I, I think, I, think I, I get what you're trying to do here. Would you like a Hebrew name? <laughs> <laughs> totally. Totes. I thought you'd never ask. Okay. <laughs> Mark. <laughs> No, Do we, be honest. We need this our is, Hebrew name wait, generator. This is the woman yes. introducing yeah, to you your wife. Have a Hebrew name generator. Bestow on her a Hebrew. What's your name. middle name, Emily? Elizabeth. Ooh. Oh my God, you're really the goi- most goisha person. So in that's Elisheva. So it's something Elisheva. So Emily. Is a Hebrew name d- a double name? Often, not always, but often. Emily. What would Emily be? Emily. Do you like Ayelet? Oh, Ayelet. Like Michael. Lovely. Sh- like Michael Shaben's wife, Ayelet Waldman. Oh. Oh, that's right. That's where I've heard that name before. Uh-huh. Okay. We've done it. Ayala and But then we have to say daughter of, and what's your mother's name? Uh, Betsy. Betsy. Oh. Batsheva. 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 Yeah. So you, okay, Ayelet Elisheva Bat Batsheva. Fantastic. We've named Fantastic. her. And now Our, we do a horror. Do that at your next Menage Twang gig. I will. Emily, thank you so much. We're, this was a pleasure. We're going to buy your chapbook, and we're never going to call you Emily again. Uh, time for our Mazel Tovs of the Week. Liel, do you have a Mazel Tov? I do. Uh, mazel Tov to uh, Matt Harvey and Jacob DeGrom and the rest of the New York Mets. Now you could go and have Thanksgiving with your in-laws and uh, read books and do uh, what you truly want to do. Because clearly, judging on the last game of the World Series, it wasn't playing baseball. Oh, that started so nice. Yeah, kick them while they're down, why don't you? I have an important one. Mine they kick is, me while I'm down. Mine is to Justin Bieber, whose song Sorry is so good, and I played it all weekend. And I just like think he needs to know. He has a Hebrew tattoo. It says Jesus, but it's in Hebrew. But like, <laughs> I don't know. 
maybe that counts for something. Does he really? Yeah. Oh, it's Yeshua? Yeah. Oh, oh And it's like oh. on his calf or something awful. Oh, Biebs. Uh Mine is to Raven, once known as Raven Simone, now a co-host of The View, who made some idiotic comment about that South Carolina deputy who yanked the girl out of her chair, the African-American student. And Raven made some comment about, well, you know, she might have deserved it or something like that on The View. And this is what the Mazel Tov is for, is she, you, if you're Raven, you want to do something to make the world forget that you were on The Cosby Show, because that's not such a hot credential anymore. She found a way to actually transcend her Cosby origins and now just become the idiot right-wing host of The View. That's so Raven. Mazel Tov, That's Raven. That's so Raven. That's so Raven. Um, we love mail. If you have thoughts, comments, praise, or questions for our panel of Jewish experts, send it to unorthodox at tabletmag.com, and we might read it on the air. For our closing credits this week, we welcome Leah Tarika, daughter of our producer, Julie Subrin, who's going to help me with the credits. Unorthodox is a production of Tablet Magazine. It's produced by my mom, Julie Subrin. With superior assistance from Sarah Every. Sarah Every? If you want to send us an email, send it to unorthodox at tabletmag.com. If you don't listen to our podcast, you will make me very sad. Can you cry can you cry a little now? <laughs> Rabbinic supervision this week by request for Rabbi Jordi Schuster-Battis. She wanted to supervise this week. Kosher Slaughtering is by Marco Rubio. Our website is tabletmag.com, and our music is by Golem. See you next week.